Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. Welcome to Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. This is Dr. Dan. Freedom Forum Radio is for you, faithful listeners, no matter who you voted for or what political party you belong to. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is not about politics. It's about principle. It's not about candidates. It's about conscience and the Constitution. Like the name implies, this is a program about freedom, individual freedom, your freedom, where it comes from, what it means to you, and most importantly, how to hang on to it. Do you ever have the feeling that something is wrong? You try the usual tricks, the usual tactics, but nothing seems to work to fix the problem that you perceive as being wrong. That leads to frustration. Well, right now, faithful listeners in this country, millions of you know that something is wrong. Our founders, the ratifiers of our Constitution, gave us ways to fix that. They gave us techniques to use. They gave us tricks to use. They gave us remedies to use in order to fix things when they weren't right. First of all, they gave us Article 1, Section 8, the enumerated powers. These are the powers that the ratifiers and the Constitution gave to the federal government. The sovereign states were a party to that Constitution, and they gave the federal government limited powers, enumerated in Article 1, Section 8. In the Constitution itself, there are checks and balances between the branches, three co-equal branches. Checks and balances were put in place so that one branch couldn't become more powerful than the other. They gave us the vote so that we had a say and an input into who represents us in our constitutional republic that they gave us. They gave us the First Amendment, freedom of the press, knowing that a free press can investigate the wrongs, can write about the wrongs, can influence people, can do its job by outing the wrongs and outing the wrongdoers. They gave us the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, and there was no question in the minds and the hearts of our ratifiers that the purpose of the Second Amendment was to prevent tyranny in government. They gave us the rest of the amendments, and especially the Ninth and the Tenth Amendment, 
which solidifies once and for all in writing that the ultimate power in this country rests in the sovereign states and the people in the sovereign states. They gave us all of the tricks, all of the tools to keep the ship of state sailing correctly in the right course. But something is wrong, isn't it? We know it. Millions of us do. And so it's important that we discuss the rightful remedy. How can the states take back power from the federal government that has exceeded its power, usurped power, expanded beyond the bounds ever envisioned by our founding fathers? You're listening to Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum's very special interview with Michael Meharan. This is part four. We pick up right now where we left off last week. Now we have 50 different states. There's simply no way that the federal government can do everything it wants to do by itself. And you mentioned federal law enforcement, and it's a perfect example. If you ever look at press releases that the, uh, the Department of uh, the DEA or even the F, uh, the Oh, Homeland Security. Just went blank. The firearms people, alcohol, hey, Bureau of no. alcohol, alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. If you look at these press releases, I don't think that I've ever seen one that didn't mention in cooperation with state police, sheriff office, you know, city police, whichever, whichever it happens to be. They depend on the cooperation and the facilities of the state. So simply pulling that rug out from under them is an extremely powerful and effective method. And unfortunately, states don't do it enough, and, you know, you have the, the strings of, of uh, money that tend to get in the way. But that's a whole different issue right there. Well, that really, I was just going to bring that up, because what you're looking at in terms of, of various federal mandates is exactly the same thing. The federal government mandates, uh, for instance, uh, I was talking to uh, one of the sheriffs up in Avery County in North Carolina, and he was complaining about the DEA mandates on how what he has to do to handle material from a meth lab if he arrests the people and then confiscates the material. And he was complaining about the fact that the cost of handling that material according to the federal mandate was a lot of money, was 1200 or $2,000 or something like that. And the federal government was really not reimbursing them for that cost. So he was wondering what would be his remedy, and the remedy obviously is to say, look, unless you're going to pay for it, in this particular case, if he was of a mind to agree, he would say, well, look, I will, I'm willing to do that, but I'm not doing it unless you pay for it. So there's now, and that, of course, goes back to the 16th Amendment, which allowed the federal government to put their hands directly into our pockets. Now that made the states even less powerful when it comes to collecting funds, uh, you know, to in order to do things. So the federal government, uh, I'm sorry if I said misspoke there, but the, the 16th Amendment makes the federal government more powerful in terms right. of forcing the states to do their will because they do uh, hold the purse strings. So in talking about nullification, one of the, one of the things that people object to if they raise an objection is that they say it is not constitutional. What do you say about that? Well, I find this argument virtually every day. And the first thing that they, they point
point to is the, the supremacy clause in the Constitution. And then they misconstrue it. <laughs> you know, they say the supremacy clause says that all federal law is superior to, to a state law. Well, that's not what it says. It says all laws that are in accordance to the Constitution or the supreme law of the land, in pursuance of, are the exact words. That's the quote. This Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, shall be the supreme law of the land. And that clause, shall be, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, that's really the key clause, isn't it? Exactly. And implied in that, not very veiled, is that any law or act that's passed by Congress or any executive action by the president that is not in pursuance of the Constitution is not the supreme law of the land. In fact, it's not a law at all. It's, as Jefferson said, it's void, unauthoritative, and of no effect. And everybody understood this. This is really not a debatable issue. We all understand that if, uh, if something is outside of the delegated powers of the Constitution, it's not a legitimate act. So we hear that argument from the supremacy clause, usually out of either ignorance or hoping that the audience will be ignorant and that they can just drop it from there. Where we really come down to the, to the nitty-gritty argument, and mostly we have to deal with this with lawyers because of the way their minds work and the way they're taught, the question ultimately comes down to who decides what in pursuance of the Constitution is. Most Americans are of the understanding that the Supreme Court is the entity that ultimately, in the final determination, decides what is constitutional and what is not. It's what's taught in law schools. It's what we learn from our very first civics class, which is in, what, sixth or seventh grade, if they even teach that anymore. But that's the, the, the understanding of most Americans. I say that that is emphatically wrong. And in order to understand why it's wrong, we really have to understand the nature of the system that the Constitution created in the first place. And this is unfortunately something that they don't teach in law schools. Most lawyers, when they start talking about nullification, are going to start the discussion with Marbury versus Madison and the whole idea that John Marshall said that the Supreme Court determines constitutionality, and then they build their case from there uh, into a very solid argument against nullification. But they're doing two things here that's a problem. Number one, they're misconstruing what Marshall said, but number two, they're not taking into account the context of the system that we live under. And so I think this is probably, right now, we're going to hit the most important part of this discussion. Who decides what's constitutional and why? And I think to understand it, we have to understand what is the nature of the, of the government that the Constitution created. We've already discussed this, hit this pretty well, but let's make it emphatic. The federal government was created with limited enumerated powers. This is not debatable. If you read any of the Federalist Papers, you read any of the ratification debates in the various states, it becomes very clear that the ratifiers believed that they were ratifying a Constitution that had limited enumerated powers for the federal government. The argument between the Federalists who were supporting the ratification of the Constitution and the Anti-Federalists who were wary of ratification was not a debate about whether we would have a national government or a limited federal government.
We have to take a quick commercial break here on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. More with Michael Meharan after the break. The argument was whether the Constitution that they were going to ratify was going to give them the limited government that they expected. The Federalists said, absolutely, this Constitution will limit the federal government. This is what you're getting. We don't have to worry about these other clauses. This is a limited, enumerated power government. The Anti-Federalists, they looked at some of these clauses like general welfare and necessary and proper and different things, and they said, ooh, looks kind of scary to me. I think that this may not limit the federal government like you're promising. That's the debate. Ultimately, the Federalists won the day. They were able to convince the Anti-Federalists that the Constitution would indeed create a limited federal government with enumerated powers. Um, we look today and we look at the arguments of the Anti-Federalists, and we have to say that they were pretty, uh, pretty, what's the word I'm looking for? Nostradamus. They were very good at projecting into the future. <laughs> But it's clear that the ratifiers believed that they were creating this limited federal government. So this raises an important question. If you're going to have a federal government with limited powers, how can you argue that that federal government that you created is going to be the one to determine the limits of its own power? To me, that's where the argument of nullification ultimately comes down. And until somebody convinces me that it makes sense for the government that was created to determine the extent of its own powers, I'm going to side on the uh, side of nullification being a legitimate course of action. Because basically what we're saying with nullification is that the people of the states who had organized themselves into sovereign political societies, there were 13 of them, they were recognized by the British at the end of the Revolutionary War as being 13 independent states, or actually literally nations. These 13 sovereign political societies said, we want to form a more perfect union. We're going to delegate political power to a general government to create this union, and we're going to retain all powers that we're not delegating to the people themselves and the state governments that they've already created. And then they said, you know what, just to make sure that everybody understands this, we're going to have the Tenth Amendment that explicitly says all powers not delegated to the federal government remain with the states and the people. And we're going to have a Ninth Amendment which stipulates that all of the things that we're saying, that the people retain their rights, that this is not an exhaustive list, that the people retain all rights and all powers that are not delegated through what the Constitution gives the federal government to do. I think, you know, that history... If you, all you have to do is look at history to support your argument. The, the colonists had just thrown off the yoke of King George, an oppressive tyrant. He had all the rights of a tyrant, and they had no rights. The soldiers could burst into your home and check for the, for the tax stamps. They could go into your home without a search warrant. Uh, there was no representation. They got rid of in our Revolutionary War, we got rid of a tyrant. He was the epitome of a huge, powerful central government. So after they did all this, and they were successful, they sat down and said, okay, we do need to have some kind of a central authority here, but we are very afraid that it's going to turn into King George again. 
So they sat down and they wrote a compact, a constitution, in which they bend over backwards to make sure that the federal government is limited. They put everything they could think of in that document to limit the federal government's power. Does it make any sense to anybody that after doing all that, they would on the very next page say, okay, well, the federal government is supreme and you can't do anything about it if you don't like what they do. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. And that really supports, in my mind, your argument that these were sovereign states. They were afraid of a central government. They said, here, take a little crumb of power. And if we don't like what you're doing, we're going to smack you around and take those crumbs right back. Exactly. And it's interesting. If you look at the ratification document that was produced by the state of New York, I like using New York as, as the example because it's not southern and they weren't a slave state, so it kind of gets rid of this whole idea that this whole discussion we're having has something to do with racism. But if you look at the New York ratifying document and you read it, you will find that the ratifier specifically said that, number one, we're giving these powers to this federal government. We retain the power to take these powers back. This is, we reserve the right to reclaim these powers if we feel it's in our best interest. And then they went on and specifically said, in essence, what I just said, that the powers that we're giving to the federal government are limited and that they are to remain limited. This is not, this is not arguable. I mean, this is what I want people to understand and, and to emphasize. There, there's no way that anybody can argue that the framers, the ratifiers, people supporting the Constitution thought that they were creating a, a federal government of unlimited power. And when you say that the, a branch of that federal government, the Supreme Court, which in essence I, I like to call the Supreme Court justices nine federal employees, nobody is going to logically connect that we're going to have this limited government and then we're going to make nine employees of that government get to be the ones who determine its own power. No. In the last resort, the people of the states have the authority and the power to determine the extent of the powers that they delegated, and that's nullification. And I think an interesting part of history that we can really focus in on that kind of proves this fact happened during the Virginia Ratifying Convention. Virginia is interesting, interesting in this situation because, first off, we all understand that Virginia was one of the most politically powerful states uh, or colonies at the time. And as such, it had a great deal of influence. It's also interesting that when it came to the Federalist, anti-Federalist divide, the state of Virginia, which was a state then, I guess it wasn't a colony because it was after the war. But anyway, Virginia was almost split down the middle between the Federalist and the anti-Federalist. And the ratification of the Constitution of Virginia was greatly in doubt. We had some of the strongest anti-federalists that were in Virginia. You had Patrick Henry and you had George Mason, and they were arguing very strongly this Constitution lacks the teeth to limit the federal government like they wanted to be limited. So during the debates, they were discussing how can we be sure that we're not going to end up losing more power than we intend. And that concludes part four of this very special five-part series with Michael Meharan here on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Tune in next week for the conclusion. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com.
the right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Oh, me the hoodoo. That gift I sing. Oh, me the Choctaw. We'll be right back. 